we continue worshiping together today, we invite you to turn in your favorite Bible app or the Pew Bible and settle in for this reading from the book of Genesis chapter 37. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt." Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Today we begin a new series called Family Matters, in which we will be exploring core stories of the family of God from the books of Genesis and Exodus. These are stories of our ancestors in faith, stories that help us understand who we are, stories that challenge us to wrestle with who God is, 
stories that are key to the story we tell of God's saving activity in the world. This series in which we recount some of our family stories from the Bible is a precursor to house meetings that are going to be happening later in this year, coming up this fall. During these gatherings, we'll share our favorite and most meaningful stories of life together, of our own experience in this Foundry family. And our shared stories will give shape and energy to a new strategic vision for Foundry's future. I, I want to encourage you now to make plans to participate in these conversations and in this story sh sharing later this year, and to be on the lookout for more information in the weeks ahead. Now let us pray together. Loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you and to you alone, for you, O oh God, are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. One of the daily devotional readings that I receive is from a retired United Methodist pastor named Steve Garnas Holmes. He writes poetic reflections, often on texts in the lectionary, and sometimes on other things. His reflection on our story for today begins this way. Poet Robert Frost is mostly right that home is where, when you have to go there, they have to take you. Mostly. But what would Hagar say? Or Joseph? Biblical families aren't havens of belonging, places of safety or unconditional acceptance. Think of them. Think of biblical families. Everyone, they struggle to be decent. I can't break it to you easy, he writes. Loving or not, family is where your bleep comes from. In these lines, the author reminds us that the stories of families in the Bible, our ancestors in faith, are filled with drama. He goes on to make the implicit connection to our own family experience. Loving or not, family is where your, let me say, baggage comes from. Even in the best, healthiest, most loving family systems, there is drama, there is conflict, there are unmet needs and unspoken resentments and unresolved hurt. In the most painful family experiences, there can be bone and soul-deep trauma inflicted. Family is a gift, but family, whatever that looks like in our lives, is the primary context for us to grow up. And growing up includes awkwardness and mistakes and ignorance and fears. 
Growing up doesn't end when we leave whatever home we inhabited as children, but is a process that lasts as long as is necessary. There's the growing up that is the physical and hormonal, uh, all those things that come with being a child and a teenager. And then there's the growing up that is more emotional and relational, the part where we might find the courage to address whatever internal baggage we carried with us out of our childhood home and begin to understand how that baggage affects who and how we are as adults. All of this growing up is messy and difficult and fraught with opportunities for learning and for pain. The story we received today from Genesis is the beginning of the Joseph saga. It's the fourth generation of the ancestors of Israel, the first generation being Abraham and Sarah, and then the next Isaac and Rebekah, and the next Jacob and Leah and Rachel. The fourth generation are made up of Jacob's offspring, including Joseph. Jacob's offspring were from four wives, Rachel, Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah. We read in Genesis 29 that Jacob originally wanted to marry Rachel. He loved Rachel. But her father tricked him, tricked Jacob, into marrying Leah first. Some good, healthy family behavior. (laughs) Yes. And in their fight, then, you've got the two sisters who are fighting to bear sons for Jacob. It's dueling mothers here. Both sisters made Jacob conceive children with their maids, Zilpah and Bilhah. Now, Rachel bore no children until after Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah had already, between themselves, given birth to 10 sons. All right? There were 10 sons. Rachel had had none. Rachel finally conceived, and she gave birth to who? Joseph. And then she gave birth to Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. Are y'all with me so far? This is the fourth generation of the ancestors of Israel. All right. So here we are. Joseph is the firstborn son of the most beloved and favorite wife. Right? You with me? And so Jacob becomes the beloved and favorite son. This favoritism is shown in part through the special gift from Jacob of a special, uh, what it says in our translation is a, a robe with long sleeves. Other translations say an ornamented tunic. We might know this as the what? The coat of many colors, right? The coat of many colors. Well, one of the things we learned in our study this past Tuesday with Rabbi Steve Weissman is that uh, modern feminist Hebrew scholars have identified that this word that is very difficult to translate, which is why we get all these different 
versions of what it actually says, that the word in that text actually describes something that is a woman's garment. Now, I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm just going to lay it out there. Do with it what you will. In any case, this fancy robe may have been one reason, in addition to the favoritism, that the elder brothers hated Joseph. There are others, other reasons, too. In verse 2, we heard that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers that he was helping. Um, he brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. In other words, he was a tattletale. And then in the verses excluded from our lectionary reading for today, Joseph tells his brothers of two dreams that he had, and he told them his interpretation of those dreams, namely that Joseph's parents and all his brothers would bow down to him. Oops, right? Right? The spoiled, bratty, precocious Joseph knew just how to stir sibling rivalry and rage. Some of us will be blessed with sibling relationships that have always been pretty positive. I am one of those people, but I was sharing after the last service, even in my situation, there were dynamics that have affected who I was that I had to work through, even in positive, good relationships. So some of us are going to have that experience. Others will have some experience of sibling rivalry in your family. Maybe you just never got along. Or maybe you used to get along but have become estranged due to different paths or different perspectives that have been taken. It's bad enough to have strife between siblings at all. But when the love of a parent gets added to the mix, and there are feelings of being less cherished than another sibling, or of being unloved or unseen by a parent, then the pain goes to a whole different level. Whether you have siblings or are an only child, it's among the most primal human traits to yearn for parental love, approval, connection. And when that's not felt or received, the wounds can be very, very deep. And all of that, in one form or fashion, seems to have been playing out in this story with Joseph. And even with all of that, what happens next in the story seems rather extreme. The brothers begin to conspire to kill. They plan to kill their brother. In fact, this is not the first time in a biblical family where a brother conspires to kill a brother. In fact, we just think back to all of the drama and the trauma that happened in the family generations who had come before Joseph and his brothers. It was one thing after another, lots of really kind of twisted family behavior. And if you even think about the generation just before, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, the brother's father, Jacob treated his own brother deceitfully when they were growing up. He 
He stole the blessing that Isaac had intended for his brother Esau and took his birthright. The multi-generational family fighting and trauma that's present in the biblical generations leads me to wonder whether what was playing out on the fields of Dothan was really just about the brothers' own feelings, or whether they were embodying the generational strife that they were born into. Studies show that there is something called intergenerational trauma that can be passed down both genetically, genetically, and psychologically. It doesn't seem out of bounds to suggest that these, this is at least partly in play in the story. And perhaps the recent discoveries about intergenerational trauma provide some concrete data to explain the rather troubling idea found in Scripture that children get cursed for the sins of the parents. The data would suggest that whatever observation got interpreted by the ancients as a theological issue, that is, that God is doing something, that it's really instead a relational issue that is based on things that humans do. That is to say, the ways we are with one another, the ways we are with our children have an impact. There are consequences when violence of any kind is done. And those consequences ripple through families and from members of families into their other relationships. Another layer to our story is highlighted by a question that was asked early in our study of the passage by Rabbi Steve Weissman in our Ask the Rabbi session last Tuesday. He asked early on this question, is this story that we heard today is this a story of a family, or is it a paradigm of what it looks like to live in community in a tribal federation? Now, let me start by saying, I just want you to hang with me. Hang with me on this one. I want to say the answer to that question is likely both. The 12 tribes of Israel are formed from the 12 sons of Jacob this fourth generation of ancestors. And the tribes of the 12 tribes each bear the name of a son, except for Joseph, whose sons Manasseh and Ephraim hold the, the pride of place on that. That's a whole other family story, which we don't have time to go into today. However, in general, 12 sons, 12 tribes. Uh, by the time our story got written down today in the form that we have it, the tribes were established. And knowing just the littlest bit about tribal history helps add texture to the family story. For example, Reuben is the firstborn son of Joseph to Leah. Judah is the fourthborn son of Joseph to Leah. Those two, historically, those tribes had animosity against one another. Because even though Reuben was the firstborn and should have had pride of place in the tribal federation, Judah became more prosperous and had better land. And so they were the ones who rose to predominance. 
always had tension historically between those tribes. We see that reflected in the family story. Because Reuben is the one initially who came and said, no, 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 let's not kill our brother. Reuben's plan was go ahead and put him in the pit, but then Reuben was going to circle back, get him out of the pit, and take him home. That was the plan. Then Reuben, evidently not knowing his brothers as well as he thought he did, wandered off. And Judah came up with the great idea, no, let's not leave him here. Let's bring him up out of the pit and do what? Sell him into slavery. Great idea. The brothers decided that was the way to go. So they drew him out of the pit, and they had, by the way, taken his fancy robe um, off, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites who were coming by. Now, just a side note, Ishmael, does that name sound familiar? That's, a, that's a, a tribe that had come from Abraham's second son, Ishmael, Hagar's son, who was what? Banished. Some other really good family behavior. All right? There's a lot of twisted up family drama playing out at every level of this story. The end of this part of the story that also is not included in our lectionary text today is that Reuben, in fact, returns to the now empty pit and learns what has been done and goes into mourning, tearing his clothes. And the brothers cover their tracks by deceiving their father and convincing him that Joseph is dead. They slaughter a goat and they take his coat and they dip his coat in the blood and they take it back to Jacob and Jacob is convinced that a wild animal has killed his most beloved son. He's inconsolable. And this, my friends, is some serious family drama, raised to the level of trauma. It is a story of jealousy, it's a story of betrayal, of pride, and of violence on both a personal and communal level. And though the story happened many more than four generations ago, more like thousands of generations, and even though the story is extreme, little brother is stripped, thrown in a pit, and sold into slavery, even with all of that, it's still a relatable human story. Because we understand how jealousy and betrayal and pride and violence can show up in families in ways large and small, through damaging words and through wounding actions. We know how land and money and ideology and fancy things can get tangled up in all of our tribal and family dynamics. And you may be thinking, what are you talking about tribal dynamics? We're not members of tribes. We don't have tribes anymore. Who's, who here thinks we don't have tribes? I want to say, let me just go on record as saying that we are all members of all sorts of tribes. They are many and they are diverse. National tribes, uh, cultural faith tribes, party tribes, and all the subcultures and internecine feuds within those larger communities. Our United Methodist Church has been in tribal conflict for decades. 
One of the things that I love about our holy text, what we call the Bible, is that it wisely includes stories, family stories, that reflect the real human experience, even the painful and the difficult parts. It shows a high level of awareness on the part of the original storytellers of the family baggage that is there to be worked on. By telling the family story, by talking about it, it also brings the conversation forward and keeps it alive through the generations as perhaps a cautionary tale and explanation for some of what we might still experience in our own family and tribal dynamics. Both awareness and talking about it, telling the story, are healthy practices for dealing with drama and the more painful trauma we experience in our families. So often families simply carry around the baggage of pain and conflict instead of consciously acknowledging and unpacking that baggage to better understand it and to let it go. And when we don't talk about what's happened or what's happening when we don't talk about Bruno or about whatever the reality, then the trauma gets stuck in a place of shame. Talking about it releases the shame and allows us to integrate the trauma into a narrative, a new narrative for our lives that is more flexible. Trauma practitioners encourage this reframing of the drama or trauma. They encourage people to create a new story that makes space, not pretending that something didn't happen, but bringing that into a new framework to find space for healing and forgiveness and kindness. This reframing keeps us from getting stuck in victimhood or in shame, but rather allows us to claim our own agency and gain resilience and ultimately freedom. When we are able to do this work by God's grace, we also gain the capacity to break the cycle in our own family. No more proverbial throwing people into pits. No more enslavement to destructive patterns of thought and behavior. No more hateful speech as simply the way we talk to one another. We become agents of healing, not just for ourselves, but for our family members and for our children and for generations to come. Part of what the stories of our ancestors teach us is that it's in the midst of family that we work our stuff out. Whether that family is our family of origin, our found family, or our church family. I like to remind us from time to time that it's in this context of life together as foundry family that we get to practice the hard teachings and insights of our faith. And the work of reframing, of breaking the cycle of baggage-laden reaction, thought, or behavior, that actually can begin here. You can practice here. So that perhaps at the right time, you'll have the courage to go home.
proverbially or really, and reckon with the family who raised you, whether they are now living or dead. Steve Garness Holmes writes this. It's the final frontier, the deepest wounds, the greatest fears, the heaviest failures, the sneakiest neuroses we have to wrestle with. Jacob and his angel, face to face or elsewhere, we have to go back into that house and work things out. Engage in loving conflict. Accept without yielding. Take what's true and flush the rest. Forgive them, forgive them, and ourselves. Honor the child of us and thank that child and say goodbye. Let them stay there while we move on. It's how we get free. All of this, beloveds, is the hard work of continuing to grow up, to be released from whatever holds us captive, that keeps us from being fully and truly the best of ourselves, and to move forward into the future that God has in store. The end of our story for today is not the end of the story either in the Joseph saga or in our lives, because God is in the mix. And so that means that there is always a new day ahead, that there is always a new day to be better than we were yesterday, to give better than we got yesterday, to receive healing, to tell a new story, to know that we are loved and to love others and ourselves more like Jesus loves us. By God's grace, by God's grace, it may be so. Thanks be to God.